0: Do you have fond memories of those not-so-long-ago days when soda came in glass bottles, drive-in movies were still a thing, and tomatoes actually tasted like tomatoes? Even in most ways we're generally better off now than we used to be, it's easy to look back and romanticize the good old days. Whether we call it declinism, which is bad, or nostalgia, which is maybe not so bad, it's pretty common to gripe about the state of things today, bemoaning the declining craftsmanship and build quality of our furniture or the dwindling number of doctors who make house calls. The same sentiment crops up in the arts as well, where some musicians have suggested that there seem to be fewer unique artists nowadays, that the musicians of yesteryear were more idiosyncratic, remarkable, unique, and had more to say than those of today. For instance, in a 2012 interview with The Strad, violinist Ivory Gitlis noted that, Alman, Chrysler, Heifetz, Milstein, Menuhin, Bush, Sammons, Oistrak, Franciscati, Huberman, Inescu, Zaghetti, each one of them playing the same music would be a completely different work. Today, you have marketable potential if you fit into a certain format that one can sell without too much of a problem. And in a 2023 article in The Guardian, another violinist, Nigel Kennedy, expressed a similar sentiment, saying that, it's wonderful to hear near to perfect playing, but it's at the expense of perfect communication. No one could play Chopin like Rubinstein, or Bach or Beethoven like Fischer. Nowadays, it's so much more clone-like. Is this simply a reflection of our tendency to look favorably at the past, or are we truly becoming more cookie-cutter-like in our approach to making music? And is there any research or data on this subject? Well, I didn't find any studies that address this debate in the classical realm, but I did find a study from 2012 that gets into the evolution of Western popular music that does provide some pretty intriguing insights. The music analyzed in this study was part of the Million Song Dataset, a huge file that includes the audio signature of 464,411 songs from 1955 to 2010 across a range of genres like rock, pop, hip hop, metal, and electronic. To give you a sense of how massive a collection of songs that is, the authors calculated that it would take about 1,200 days, or about three years and four months, of listening 24 hours a day to get through the entire playlist. The researchers were primarily interested in seeing how popular music had evolved over 50 years, and they looked at three key elements of the music contained in this dataset: pitch, timbre, and loudness. Pitch included details about harmony, melody, chords, and progressions, essentially how the notes were arranged and unfolded over the course of the song. Timbre related to the color, texture, and quality of sounds used in the song, for instance the choice of instruments, as well as recording techniques which affect this aspect of sound. And loudness, of course, was about the inherent volume of the music itself, independent of any adjustments the listener might make on their listening device. So were there any changes in these factors over time? Well, yes indeed there were. The researchers found that while there was a lot of sameness among all the songs in the data set, even over a span of 50 years, there were three trends. In terms of pitch, the data suggested that the variety of pitch progressions used has shrunk over the years. In other words, musicians are becoming less inventive and adventurous in how they get from one note or chord to the next and instead seem to be relying more and more on the same sequences and patterns that others have used successfully in the past. A similar homogenization seemed to occur with timbre. Whether it's due to an increasing reliance on the same instrumentation, or the utilization of the same limited toolbox of recording techniques, the palette of sound, colors, texture, and tone present in recordings has diminished as well. Meanwhile, everything is getting louder, which might not seem like a big deal. I mean, that's what the volume knob is for, right? But this actually has some meaningful consequences, because when everything is louder, the dynamic range becomes much more restricted. As in, the contrast between the really soft stuff and the really loud stuff shrinks, which actually reduces the overall emotional impact of the music and how exciting things can be. It's not really fair to compare popular musicians and classical musicians, of course, so it's not clear what an analysis of classical music recordings would yield, but it has been argued and debated that easy access to so many incredible, accurate, and perfect recordings has made us more afraid of making mistakes and taking risks, which could easily trickle down into how we approach practicing as well, where instead of experimenting more freely, trying new things, and embracing errors in the practice room, accuracy becomes the primary goal even though the research suggests that we don't have to be as afraid of errors as you might think. For instance, it seems that practicing something in a variety of different ways, aka variable practice, can lead to better learning and performance than if we aim for consistent, mistake-free repetitions. And that practicing doing something wrong on purpose can actually lead to better learning and performance than only trying to get it right. For links to specific articles on how to do variable practice and instructions on the right way to practice wrong on purpose, you can go to the written blog post at bulletproofmusician.com slash blog, or click on the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. Also, if you're interested in the issue of perfectionism in the practice room and in music more generally, that will actually be the subject of an upcoming podcast episode with clarinetist Christine Carter and psychologist Ellen Hendrickson. To make sure you don't miss that when it comes out, click subscribe or follow in your podcast app to make sure you get a notification when it's released. And the challenge of learning to be a kinder and gentler, yet more effective and efficient practicer and performer will be one of the key objectives in the upcoming live four-week performance psych essentials class. Because It turns out that abusive inner critic is not an essential ingredient in becoming the best musician you can be. You can get more details about the class and learn how to sign up at bulletproofmusician.com slash essentials.